Hello, and welcome to the Jubilee Church Podcast. Jubilee Church exists to help all people know God, find family, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you would like to learn more or connect with us, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Joy. Webster's Dictionary defines it as the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing something that one desires. But that seems too circumstantial. I mean, we all know people who are upbeat by nature, uh, people who seem like they could never be shaken by life's challenges. So is joy more than just a good feeling about your circumstances? According to Philippians, there is a joy that can support us and lift us up, a joy that can be found even amidst the darkest of days. Well, even though we may struggle to define it, we all know joy when we feel it. The exhilaration of hard-earned success, a touching reunion with loved ones, the beaming pride of a parent. No matter what scenario or memory you turn to, uh, it isn't hard to visualize what joy looks like. The author of the letter to the Philippians Paul the Apostle, he refers to joy 16 times in this short letter, just 100 verses. That's one out of every six. Beyond that, if Paul's emphasis on joy isn't enough for you, have you seen our snazzy logo? I think we can agree that the theme of joy is hard to miss. Ah, but joy alone isn't really Paul's point. Rather, joy in the midst of suffering, that, I must admit, is hard to visualize. But today, Paul is going to show us uh, a concrete picture of the joy that he can draw upon, uh, uh, give us a source of joy that can support us even in our hardest trials. My name is Greg Nelson. I'm one of the elders here at Jubilee Church. And if you're just joining us for our series through the book of Philippians, let me welcome you. Uh, Pursuing joy. Uh, a journey through Philippians is a nine-week series that we're doing to try to tap into and understand this joy that can uh, surpass understanding. Today, we'll be looking, taking another look at this treatise, this letter written by the Apostle Paul on joy in suffering. And we are asking God to help us to decipher the code to experiencing fulfillment in life, even when we are hard-pressed and weighed down, even when we are living in crisis mode. And could there be any more timely a message for the days that we're in? So how does the Apostle Paul not only discover joy in the midst of his suffering, but also stoke the fires of joy in the hearts of others, in the hearts of the members of this church to whom he's writing? Well, in order to understand how this text can lead us into a life of joy, uh, I want to consider three things today. First, a contrast. Second, a commendation, and third, a community. There is a theme in this text that is a continuation of the theme that Paul has been weaving in and out of his writing uh, from the first half of this letter. If you've been following along with us, uh, it will become quickly obvious to you. In chapter one, Paul begins with a declaration of the joy that he derives when he thinks about this church. He's talking to them about their gospel partnership. That is, despite the fact that he is languishing in a Roman prison, Paul can think about this church. And when he remembers them, 
He remembers the commitment that they share together to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message that Jesus is God's chosen messenger. Now, if you've been around church for any period of time, the concept of Jesus Christ as King of Kings or Lord of Lords, it might seem like old hat to you. You know, sure, it's important, but it doesn't really feel that revolutionary. But if we consider the historical and political climate in which Paul is living and writing, we find that these statements about uh, the prominence or the preeminence of Jesus Christ, well, they would have been considered quite dangerous to the wider culture. In fact, the proclamation that Jesus is Lord would have been seen as the speech of revolutionaries and traitors to the Roman emperor. At the time that Paul was writing, the prevailing worldview uh, for the average Roman citizen was that the emperor, Caesar, was king of kings and lord of lords. And that makes sense because Rome was the superpower of its day, and the emperor would have been the most powerful man alive. Now, this engendered amongst the people um, in the early days uh, tributes and, and acts of thanksgiving to the Caesar, but this quickly turned into Caesar worship. This religious cult uh, sprang up and it spread all through the Roman Empire uh, and it ended up creating areas of temple worship, quite fervent and um, impassioned worship from Roman citizens to, to thank the gods for Caesar and to thank Caesar for his peace. Well, eventually this resulted in state monitored and uh, legally required tributes to be paid to the Caesar. So to worship another man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, this was seen as a, a serious betrayal of the Roman Empire and the Roman state. This led to incited violence and riots, and you can read about that in many of the cities that Paul uh, visited. Any place where the gospel of Jesus Christ began to gain momentum, there was civil disobedience and civil unrest. It shouldn't be hard for us to imagine then that in a setting where the Caesar would uh, uh, sanction uh, persecution against Christians, that any person who committed their life to Jesus Christ would naturally have an affinity for or a connection to a bond with others who were also experiencing similar marginalization. But that's not the only reason that Paul has joy when he thinks about the Philippian church. He's thinking about their, not just their shared suffering, but their commitment to this message of Jesus and their commitment to see the grace that comes through the knowledge of Jesus Christ going out and spreading and changing lives all around them. We considered in Brian's first message in this series, this joy connection to gospel partnership how the author of the letter Paul himself had encountered Jesus in a radical way. He chose then to build his whole life around this message that Jesus Christ had lived a perfect life, that he had died as a sacrifice for sin, that he had made a way for men to be reconciled to God and to experience God's lavish love and grace. This experience of God's unmerited blessing and favor provided Paul an unassailable source of joy, even in his hardest circumstances. Now, we too can take a play out of Paul's playbook. We can uh, make Jesus and his message the center of our lives. And then by connecting with gospel community, we too can access the same assurances that Paul had, the same joy that comforted him. These things can be ours. Now, 
if we pay attention to this uh, letter and you read it a few times, other themes will pop up to you. Uh, one of those being this contrast, a contrast between selfish ambition and this gospel partnership. Say that with me, contrast. So Paul first introduces this comparison in uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Uh, he then picks it up again in chapter 2, uh, where he writes, It's true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, but others preach about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me, for they know I have been appointed to, to defend the good news. Those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely intending to make my chains more painful to me. And then in chapter two, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Again, this comes up when he speaks about Jesus Christ's humility how he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then we saw it last week in verses 14 and 15, where Paul writes, do all things without grumbling or complaining that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And then once again here today, when Paul talks about his friend, Timothy, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ, but, but you know Timothy's proven worth. This is the fifth time Paul has brought up this contrast between selfish ambition and uh, gospel unity. Uh, now that we've considered this, we should then turn to this second uh, theme, which is this commendation. In this section, Paul is going to introduce us to two men. Uh, these two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, uh, were both men who have made an enormous impact in Paul's life. And so as he talks about them, we're going to learn more and more about why that is. Paul has laid down these theme about selfish interest and uh, selfless unity. And he's going to use Timothy and Epaphroditus' example to show us a concrete picture of what it looks like to live a life of selfless unity under the gospel. But who were these two men? Well, if you were with us last year when we went through the book of the Acts of the Apostles, you would have been introduced to Timothy. Paul first met Timothy in the city of Lystra. Timothy was born the son of a Greek man and a Jewish woman, uh, but he quickly became a believer and he excelled in his faith. He was well known in the community as a man of faith. We also learn about Timothy through uh, many of Paul's writings. Uh, in addition to this letter, Paul actually mentions Timothy in almost every letter that he writes in the New Testament. Uh, Timothy was identified to have this burgeoning gift for ministry. And Paul, identifying this, recruits Timothy to be his protege. Uh, Timothy, in fact, accompanied Paul to the city of Philippi and helped Paul to plant this church to which Paul is writing. So once again, this church knows Timothy's proven worth. We don't know nearly as much about Epaphroditus, though. 
Uh, he is really only mentioned here in today's text and again towards the end of this same letter in chapter 4. Uh, but from these passages, we can gather that like Timothy, he is a man of sincere faith and rock-solid character. And then like Paul, he is devoted to Jesus' cause, uh, having risked his life to bring a message of comfort and to bring practical support to Paul from the church in Philippi, even at the uh, expense of his own health. Now, Epaphroditus is described as a, a worker, a brother, a soldier, a messenger, uh, a minister, and a man deserving of honor. Now, how's that for a strong resume? The letter also emphasizes Epaphroditus' tender affection in his care and his concern for the church in Philippi. And so we see more and more about the kind of person that he is. But more than simply bragging about these men, about their ministry gifting, uh, their deep relational connectedness, you know, I want to spend some time examining how their relationships, and their, specifically their relationships with Paul the Apostle, expand on this theme of Christian joy. In order to do that, let's consider our last C for the day, community. Now, this section I had considered naming the comforts of codependency in Christian community, but I thought that was a bit much, so we'll stick with community. Let's return to Timothy for a minute. Paul writes of Timothy, as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Personally, as both a son and a father, I find this to be an incredibly powerful picture. I think every person can relate to the idea of being a child and longing for the approval of their father. Whether you have positive or negative associations uh, with this image, a loving father uh, teaching his son to throw the baseball or running alongside his daughter as she learns to ride a bicycle, these things speak to us of the assurance that a father's love can give and of the uh, joy that we experience by knowing that our father approves of us. In fact, this conjures in me a, a, a remembrance of the deep um, uh, feeling of desiring to, to want to make my father proud, to know that he loved me and not just loved me, but delighted in me. Now, as a father to a young son, I experience this relational dynamic from both sides. I mean, I see how my son longs for my attention. I see how his attitude changes and his countenance falls when he thinks that uh, I'm disappointed in him. For all these reasons, I'm motivated to make positive investments in his self-esteem, to reassure him that uh, he is worth something, to invest in his potential and to celebrate with him his victories. More than that, I dream about those moments when, after achieving some hard-earned goal, uh, we will exchange a look in, that simultaneously expresses both my pride in him as a father and his thankfulness for the sacrifices that I've made. Now, maybe that sounds too much like an after-school special uh, or, or, or maybe like a movie on the, the Hallmark Channel. But I think that these pictures speak to us about what the father-son uh, relationship could be and should be. So I want to talk to you now about parenting, but not biological parenting, about spiritual parenting. You see, Timothy wasn't actually Paul's son, but he became Paul's son in the faith. 
One of the deep abiding blessings of being uh, saved by Jesus to be, becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ is that he doesn't save us and give us marching orders that involve uh, a political ideology or uh, a moral code to live by or a, a list of good deeds to perform. No, he saves us into a family. And that family, God's family, is filled with people, parents and children, even if they aren't biologically related. There is a great comfort and source of joy here if we look for it. Because anyone can engage in spiritual parenting. Young, old, married, divorced, single, widowed, it doesn't really matter what your social situation is. We have access to this dynamic, this relational support. Spiritual parenting, mentorship, discipleship, it goes by many names, but this is a bedrock piece of the life of the church together. The pandemic that we're living through right now, if it has done anything, it has exposed serious fault lines in the ways that we relate as modern people. Even though we're more connected digitally and we have easier access to communication, we are relationally more isolated than we've ever been. And if social distancing and the shutdowns have shown us anything, it's that we desperately need people. A research study done in May showed that the coronavirus pandemic has caused a number of adults who experience some form of mental illness or some symptom associated with mental illness to increase from 20% to nearly 45%. So these distances, these separations, these disruptions to the way that we relate are having an enormous impact on our culture. So if Paul's example and his letter teaches us anything, it's that in the crises of life, we can find deep and abiding joy in our relationships, specifically by reaping the fruit and the benefit of investments we have already made in these relationships. And that's what he experiences with Timothy. He has a great pride and joy as he sends Timothy. Remember, Paul is in chains and he cannot travel to Philippi, but he can send Timothy and he can trust that Timothy will uh, honor his request. Now let's consider Paul again, because spiritual parenting isn't the only way to experience joy in dark circumstances. Not only is Paul um, responsible for uh, writing 30%, nearly 30% of the New Testament. He was also the man who was almost single-handedly behind uh, this great gospel expansion that went out into these uh, Gentile and non-Jewish areas in the first century. And so he is seen often elevated as this pillar and as this um, an influencer in the early uh, days of Christianity. But he doesn't follow any of the rules of modern influencers. And if you see what the modern leadership gurus say, they would say that you've got to have a slick and polished production in your communication. You've got to deliver airtight talking points and you've got to play to your strengths at all times. Paul, on the other hand, purposefully kept his speech simple, without embellishment. He preached an unpopular message that was described as foolishness to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to Jews. And he didn't hesitate to admit his weaknesses. In fact, he even bragged about his weakness. Here in Philippians chapter 2, when describing Epaphroditus' contribution, Paul admits that Paul himself had a need that he couldn't meet and that Epaphroditus had come from this church in Philippi to meet that need. 
Often we find that when we are facing a need, a shortcoming, a moral failure, a, a physical or an emotional ailment, or some circumstance that just feels too big to us, our impulse is to cover up. We hide our true selves because of fear. We are afraid to admit our inadequacy. We, we're afraid that others would see us, determine that we're too much of a mess, too much of a burden, and that we would be rejected. Or we're so desperate to be good, to be better, that we can't even accept ourselves. So like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, aware of their brokenness, we hide ourselves in plain sight. But not Paul. When he writes to the church in the city of Corinth, he says this, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life. That sounds like an experience of fear and anxiety that is overwhelming. And then he concludes this section by saying, God will deliver us in part through your prayers. Paul is telling them that he is relying on them, that he needs them. He lays bare his inadequacy and liberally chooses to lean on others for their assistance. He doesn't emphasize that he prayed and God miraculously brought deliverance. No, but God had done that for him in the past. In Acts 16, when this church in Philippi was being launched, Paul and Silas were arrested and they were uh, jailed for their message about Jesus. In the middle of the night, they were singing and praying to the Lord. And there was an earthquake. The chains fell off, the doors opened, and all the prisoners were set free. I don't know what they were singing, but it must have been something great. There is power in the name of Jesus to break every chain, to bring an earthquake, to open the gates. That's part of the Philippians' own story. But here in chapter 2, the message from Paul is not one simply of waiting for God's miracle, but of reliance on God and his people to come through. Both and, not either or. And these types of encouragements are repeated throughout the New Testament scriptures. Bear one another's burdens. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. So while a miraculous intervention may feel like the best test, the truest evidence that God is real and that he is accessible and that he is truly at work, it turns out that God delights to use people. He uses his church. He does it collectively and individually. God loves to hand deliver his grace to us through people. As Henry Cloud, renowned Christian psychologist and author states, we tend to think that people are God's plan B. When he doesn't intervene directly, he'll use people instead. But God has designed it so that we would grow and change through relationships. In fact, Ephesians, uh, in the letter to the Ephesians, all of chapter four is totally dedicated to the idea that God has given gifts to the church, to individual people, and that those gifts exist so that the church could grow up into the fullness of Jesus Christ's plan for them. So we must be honest about our needs when we come to the end of ourselves. When we avoid this biblical vulnerability, we cut ourselves off from one of God's most powerful avenues to deliver grace to us. 
My wife remarked to me just the other day that her community group had a really powerful time together, probably their best meeting of the semester, if not their best meeting ever. And so curious, I asked her, you know, what happened in the group? What made it so impactful? Rather than recounting to me some uh, intuitive insights uh, uh, of interpreting the scripture or some, some spiritual truth that opened everyone's eyes, she said, well, simply, you know, someone in the group was willing to share their true struggle. They were feeling fear, anxiety. They were feeling overwhelmed by all the things going on in the world today and um, that they were... Um, uh, doubting God's goodness, God's ability to protect us and deliver good things to us. And, you know, rather than being rejected because of the burden or being reprimanded for being a faithless, the community group gathered around this person with words of encouragement, uh, words of grace, uh, delivering, you know, God's care to this person. And then uh, that made it safe for others to begin to disclose similar experiences and similar fears and similar feelings. And uh, in the group, that group became a safe place to be, well, to be human. And God's grace began to overflow to each person there. In this way, the group members selflessly embodied Christ to one another, reaching out with loving acceptance and gentle concern for their hurting brothers and sisters. If only every disclosure of weakness in the church was met with the same kindness. If we want to fulfill our call to be a community characterized by God's grace, we have to be ready for these opportunities. We have to anticipate that there are needs around, even if people don't yet feel safe to share them. Epaphroditus knew that Paul had a need and he willingly went to meet that need. And Paul knew that he had a need and he was willing to receive from Epaphroditus. And so in this way, spiritual brotherhood was a two-way street. We're tempted to think that spiritual maturity is characterized by giving and giving and giving. But Paul teaches us in this passage that spiritual maturity involves both giving and receiving and that there is great joy to be had. So we must ask ourselves, if we are lacking in joy, have we invested in spiritual friendships, spiritual parenting? Have we just dedicated ourselves to Jesus and his message in such a way that we see other people as a, a meaningful uh, avenue of investment, a great place to spend our time and our talents and our efforts? Have we watered neighboring souls and planted spiritual seeds? Are we nurturing others' growth? Likewise, have we cut ourselves off from the grace of God that could be administered to us through others because of fear of rejection or the pain of uh, acknowledging our weaknesses? Do others know our needs? Could they serve us? Uh, do they have permission to get into our lives and to give us comfort and encouragement in the Spirit? to be a conduit of God's grace. They can't do that if we're closed off to vulnerability. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, offers us, offers you an invitation to joy in the midst of spiritual family. Will you join us? Will you take it?